bring Steve Justice up here. He's going to be... He is going to deliver an amazing word. I'll tell you what, this man is deep, kind, generous, articulate, so personable. I mean, ha, huh, Sue, I'll tell you what. And Sue is like, likewise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyways. All right, so we're going to turn it over to Steve, and you guys are in for a treat. If you have not heard Thanks, Steve Andy. teach, man, whew, deep, deep wells. So there you go. Isn't Angie the best? I mean, seriously. She and Josh are such a gift to this house, and we're thankful. How do you guys like my pulpit? Aaron sent this text to me like about, I don't know, two weeks ago. It had this photograph of this in a box, and he's like, just for you. And I'm like, oh my goodness, my heart is like fluttering of palpitations over this pulpit wannabe, you know what I mean? I said, thank you so much. Will it grow up someday? You know, will it get larger? You know, that kind of thing. We sort of have this running joke because I'm, I'm a little old school and need something so I can uh, sit my stuff on and get my bifocals lined up. I mean, can, you, can I hear an amen on that? Come on. Absolutely. After that, we need to pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your presence here today which has been so thick and real. I thank you for your word, which is alive. And I pray, God, that you will take the word this morning. You use it to mine into our hearts and our souls and to make us a people after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with all of the media at our fingertips, it doesn't take too long to figure out that we are living in very turbulent times. And if we're not mindful of history, we might be tempted to think that these times are unique, that no one has ever had to face what we are facing today. But my friends, I don't believe that's true. The Roman Empire in the days of the Apostle Paul faced political corruption, abuse by authorities, social unrest, racial and religious riots, violence in the streets, wars, and health pandemics. At times, the political division was so extreme that leaders were assassinated. There was a wide economic gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. Indeed, whether you realize it or not, most people who lived in the Roman Empire were classified as slaves. It was a society that emphasized and catered to the selfish interests of the individual. Daily, people were tempted to fulfill their lusts for temporary material things, for money, for sex, for status, and power. Whether expressly stated or not, the Romans were taught to strive for and live by a different version of the golden rule. Namely, he who has the gold makes the rules. 
I don't know, to, but to me, does that sound familiar? I mean, does it sound familiar to you? It, in some ways, it, it could be like a synopsis of any one of our not-too-distant daily headlines. So in the midst of these turbulent times in which Paul, the Apostle Paul, lived, he wrote his letter to the church at Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, around A.D. 57, to explain the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, to explain how Christians were to be living in and responding to the world around them according to the will of God. It was their time, and Paul knew that in Christ they had all that they needed to respond. In moments in the moments that are remaining this morning, I want to focus on what Paul says to the Roman Christians about how they were to be living and responding in their turbulent times because these same life-giving principles will give direction and hope to us. This is our time. God made us, you and me, for this time. And in Christ, we too have more than enough, more than enough to respond to the days in which we live. In the first 11 chapter of the book of Romans, Paul explains the gospel message. The word gospel simply means good news. And in this case, it was the good news about Jesus Christ and what he had done for everyone who would believe in him. Indeed, if you turn to Romans 1.16, you will see that the theme that Paul sets out for the entire letter to the church at Rome, when he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, has never been to Rome when he's writing this letter. It's not a church that he planted. In fact, what we know from history is that the church in Rome was actually started by people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and when they back, went back to Rome from that Jewish festival, they took Jesus, and they took the Spirit with them, and they planted house churches all across Rome. Now, in Rome, there were two types of Christians, basically. There were Jewish Christians, persons who had been raised as Jews according to the Jewish law and who had come to know Christ. But there were also in Rome non-Jewish Christians, people who were not raised as Jews and were called Gentiles. Now, as it would happen, because there were so many people living in Rome at the time, there was not just one Roman church. There were house churches spread all around Rome. And not surprisingly, some of those house churches were filled with Jewish Christians because they be our people. And, and then there were other houses that were filled with non-Jewish Christians or Gentiles because they be our people, right? But the problem was, you see, that the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians weren't getting along. Now, I know you're saying, oh, my goodness, how could that ever be? The Christians would not get along. I mean, who in the world would ever think of splitting up, you know, and being in different churches and all this kind of stuff? I mean, oh, no. 
but but yeah, no, it 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 was happening really and truly. I know it's hard to believe, but it was happening, and 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 so and they were fighting about very important things. You see, the Jewish Christians had been raised with certain dietary laws. They were not, shall we say, bacon friendly. Okay, I mean they, they pork was really just yeah. So, but then the Gentiles were like, oh man, bacon. Give me that bacon. I want bacon in the morning. I want bacon at noon. I want bacon at midnight. I, I want bacon in my toothpaste. You know what I'm saying? And so, seriously, you know they make bacon-flavored toothpaste? Uh -huh. but, but the reality was that those who lived by the dietary laws believed that those who did not needed to live by them to be a Christian. And, and, and those who didn't live by them believed that those who did, well, well, they just needed to get enlightened, you see, and give that stuff up, come on over to the bacon side, you know. And so we have people fighting about things which seem very important to them, but causing dissension in the life of the church. It wasn't just food. It was also wine. I mean, some of the Christians believed they could drink wine, and some of them believed, oh, no, 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 you can't drink wine. And, and, and some of the Jewish Christians believed that certain days of the week were more important than others. They recognized the Sabbath. And so from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they were worshiping God as, as Jews had for hundreds and hundreds of years. And everyone, of course, needed to do that still. Because to be a Christian, you must be a Jew, some thought. But there's Gentiles are like, come on, man. I'm on the first day of the week. Don't you know Jesus rose on the first day of the week? We're going to worship on Sunday. Sunday is coming. And so we have, you know, house churches fighting about important things like food and wine and which day of the week is important. And Paul says in the first 11 chapters of Romans, you've got to understand the good news of Jesus. Because in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither, there's neither slave nor free. There's not even male nor female. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. You see, Jesus came to die for everyone. And we all come to Jesus, no matter our past, no matter the color of our skin, no matter our gender, we all come to Jesus the same way through faith. And Paul says it's been this way from the beginning, since the time of Abraham. You see, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so Paul says, don't you understand, you Jews and you Gentiles, you both are Christians by the same act of Christ and through the same means. He's emphasizing what they have in common and not their differences. Then after explaining the good news of Jesus Christ in technicolor and laying out for them the sacrifice, the sheer sacrifice that Jesus made for them. For the wages of sin is death, he would say in Romans chapter 6. But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Those, those amazing scriptures are all in the first 11 chapters of Romans, you see. He's laying out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in one of the fullest, clearest, deepest passages in the entire Bible. And after finishing chapter 11, he asks a question. He actually answers a question. And his question is this. The implicit question is this. What should be our response to what Jesus 
has done for us. What should be our response to the Savior who gave everything he had for us? What should be our response in light of what Jesus has done for us? You see, that answer, our answer to that question, what should be your response to what Jesus has done for you? Is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And it controls how we function as believers in the church and how we respond to the world around us. Now, Paul explains what the proper response is in four steps that I want to review this morning. The first step we find is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So I'd like you to turn there with me. And here Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Step one to the proper response to Jesus Christ and to the times in which we live is to offer ourselves entirely to God, holding nothing back. Paul says, in light of what Christ has done for us, the only reasonable, the only truthful, the only spiritual response is to give him all of ourselves. Now notice what he says. We're not supposed to give, give ourselves to him as a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. And of course, what Paul means is that for, for hundreds of years, the Jews have been bringing animals to the temple, right? And they would slit the throat of a, of a, of a sheep, or they would, they would kill the animals that would be offered, and their blood would be poured onto the altar at the temple. But Paul, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, has just laid out that, listen, when Jesus died on the cross... He was the last person that would ever need to die to, to restore relationship with God. No more would anyone have to die. None of you will have to die eternally. No more. What Jesus did on the cross was the final sacrifice. No one else has to die. So you give yourselves not as a dead sacrifice, not as the animals of the past, but because of what Jesus has done, you give yourself as a living sacrifice. God wants you Alive, He wants all of you alive. And when we give ourselves to God, we become holy and acceptable. And, and the word holy is, is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word hagias. We get the same word saint and sanctification, all from that same word. And it's, it's, it simply means this, to be set apart. And here's the idea. When I offer myself entirely to God and hold nothing back... He takes me and sets me apart. It's like he labels me as belonging to him. I become a part of a new family of believers. And, and, and I'm set aside to be used only for his purposes. Step one, give yourself entirely to God as a living sacrifice. And he will set you apart to be holy and acceptable for his use. Not long ago, I was flipping channels, trying to find something to watch, and I came across this amazing show about poker. I know, you're questioning my spirituality all of a sudden. Just hang with me. 
And I, I'd never watched this this poker show before, but I, I was struck by it because these guys were sitting around this table with, with all these chips in front of them, you know. And, and some of them were even wearing sunglasses. I mean, it was so cool. And there was just tension. You know, you could feel tension at the table. Like, what's going to happen? Who's going to get the cards? And who's going to win, right? But what struck me about this was, was there, were, there was like these, these chairs seated around this table. And there were all these people just sitting there, you know, just talking, sipping whatever adult beverage they were sipping, eating food, just carrying on. You could see all this going on in the background, but we got all this tension focused on this one table. Okay? And then, right when I got to the channel, something amazing happened. One of the guys at the table who was wearing sunglasses so you couldn't see his eyes, he takes all of the chips in front of him and he pushes them into the center of the table. And he says those magic words, I am all in. Now, what was amazing about that is that when he did that, there was a hush in the room. And all the people who were sitting around this table, you see, and who had been carrying on conversation, casual conversation, they stopped right then. Because something amazing was about to happen. Somebody had just laid it all on the line. And they wanted to see what was going to happen. I tell you this morning, that's the way God and the angels look at us. When you lay it all on the line, when you go all in, they stop. They stop. They want to see. God says, there's someone. There's someone that I can use. I'll tell you this much. I don't think my life really began until I came to the point when I realized that I had nothing to offer to God. God didn't want my skills. He didn't want my gifts. He didn't want my degrees. He didn't want whatever I had. It meant nothing to him, absolutely nothing. And yet I lived for years as if I was impressing God by this or impressing him by that or, or, or hurting him by doing this or hurting him by doing that. And, and I had to come to the place to see that that was all, in some senses, a lie. It, it was a self-lie. It, 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 was, it, was, it was thinking that, that somehow got me through the day. But the reality was, I didn't really become alive until I died. Until I laid myself at the foot of the cross and said, I am a total failure. I have nothing to give to you. I have nothing to offer. And God says, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I want. I want you. I want all of you just as you are. Step one, if we're going to face these turbulent times, we have to give him all of ourselves. Step two, Romans 12, 2, read it with me. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? What Paul has in mind here is, is a new mind. 
that we get when we give ourselves entirely over to God. And, and he's contrasting what he said earlier in the letter. And so I want you to turn quickly back to Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. And here's what Paul says. He's talking about people who do not know Christ. And he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Say debased. Debased means worthless. He gave them up to a worthless mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the debased mind. That is the mind of the world. That is the mind without Jesus Christ. So then we come back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and Paul says, but listen. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't live with a debased, worthless mind. When you give your life entirely over to God, he wants to give you a brand new mind. He wants to transform your life by renewing your mind so that you're able to discern what God's will is. It's like this. I, if I have a debased mind, a mind living by the world's values, influenced by the world, I can't see God's will. I can't even sense what God's wants. It's so cluttered by the world. But when I give myself entirely over to God, and His Spirit comes within me, He takes the blinders off of my eyes, and for the first time in my life, maybe, I'm able to actually see the world as God sees it. I'm able to feel for my brother and sister as God feels for them. I'm able to know what God wants. And I am empowered to do it. So when we give ourselves to him, his spirit gives us a renewed mind, the power to live a transformed life. Surely and steadily, our mind changes from the stinking thinking of a debased mind that is conformed to the world's values to a renewed mind that thinks like God does. Look at your neighbor and say, the stinking thinking's got to go. Just do it right now. Oh, my. Well, some of you got real serious about that. <laughs> Pointing the fingers even. I want to hold back a little bit there, you know. The stinking thinking has got to go. We've got a world that's filled with stinking thinking. It's got to go. We're able to see and know as with new eyes through the re renewed mind that God gives us. I, I think I, I liken this to how many of you have ever received an email that had a file attached to it, and you open the file, and you get some message that says the file is corrupted. You ever, you ever got that sort of a message before? I mean, I usually fall off my chair at that point because I think, oh my gosh, I've just caught some sort of virus or something horrible is about to happen. And so I step back from my computer so it doesn't blow up. I mean, you just, I mean, you just don't know these days, right? You know, although somebody from Czechoslovakia is hacking my computer. You know, I don't know, right? I see that word corrupt, and I'm like, oh! 
So then I sheepishly crawl back to my computer and I send back an email and says, if you're not a Russian spy, could you please send the file again? Because it was corrupted. And so they send it back and I open it and, oh, it works. I see what I'm supposed to see. I'm able to accomplish exactly what I was supposed to accomplish. My point is that that's what it's like with the renewed mind. When I live with a debased mind, I'm living out of a corrupted mindset. I'm not functioning as God intended. But when I give my life to him and he gives me a renewed mind, I function exactly as God intended me to function. Now listen, you've got to understand how radical this is. This is a truly upside-down view of the world. Or the opposite message of the world. Typically, I guess what I'm trying to say is what the world values, God does not value. And typically, what the world tells you to do, God tells you to do just the opposite. L listen to, to me for a second. The world says to get what you can, keep what you can, and let others spend for themselves. Amen? Huh? Jesus says, what can I do for others? The world says it's okay to be selfish because you deserve, darling. You deserve. The Christian says it's not about me. It's about God, and it's about us. The world says that you need to worry about how you look or what you wear or what you eat. I mean, can we get it, amen? I mean, every commercial is like, I, I got to get them eyelashes. You know, I'd look so much better if I had them eyelashes. Or I got to color that hair, baby. Or I got to nip and tuck this and move that there. And if I just eat this and do this and do that, I'm going to look just like that. Right? I mean, that's the message of the world saying, you got to be like that. Right? Yeah. Jesus says, you don't need to worry about how you look. Mm. Or the clothes you're going to wear or the food that you're going to eat because God knows that we need those things and he will supply them. Mm. The world says, if you hit me or you attack me, it's okay for me to hit you back and attack you or even take vengeance because you did it first, right? But Jesus says that we're supposed to bless those who persecute us that we're supposed to love our enemies. If our enemy is hungry or thirsty, we're supposed to give him something to eat and something to drink. I, I could go down the list, and it'd probably be a good exercise for you to go home today and write out on one side of a piece of paper the messages of the world and the countervailing message of Jesus on the other side of the page. Because what we're talking about is the debased mindset versus the renewed mindset, and it's important. It's important. I could go on. There's lots of, lots of contrast, but the point is this. The stinking thinking of the debased mind conformed to the world's patterns and values is at war with the renewed mind. But we have to keep in mind that the debased mind is death and the renewed mind is eternal life. The debased mind is bondage. The renewed mind is freedom. So, how does this renewed mind work in the context of the church? That takes us to step three. Let's look at Romans 12, 12 verses 3 through 8. There Paul says, for by, 
the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Hmm. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What's Paul saying? He says, when you have the renewed mind, the, re the renewed mind does not think that it's all that. On the other hand, the renewed mind does not think it's all not that. Paul's point is this. Comparison thinking, comparing ourselves one to another, even in the body of Christ, is not consistent with the renewed mindset. He doesn't want you thinking about whether you're better or worse than someone else, whether you have more gifts than someone else or less gifts. He doesn't want you thinking you're high or lower because, you see, Paul understands that every part of the body is absolutely necessary. Just like the human body has many parts or, or members, the body of Christ, the church, intentionally has many members. Paul says that God is the one who assigns our gifts and our roles. You see, in verse 3, he says, we're supposed to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When he's talking about the measure of faith, he's not talking about a quantity of faith. It's not like, okay, Brianna, you're going to get a whole pound of faith, and James, you're only going to get a cup. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a quantitative thing. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is that 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 you are with your renewed mind to think with sober judgment about finding your place in the body. You need to know what your place, your gifting is, and you need to do you. That's the renewed mind. Every part is important. Every single part. Because together we are fun one functioning body in Christ. And we are members of one another. Paul would say we are connected spiritually. Now we know this physically. Because you know I'm getting old. I know you don't, you don't hard to believe. I get it. Okay. But I am. I'm getting old. And, and when I walk you know every once in a while my right big toe hurts. I don't know why it hurts. I think it's just getting old. But the bottom line is it hurts. And when that big toe hurts guess what? My whole body knows. In fact, I, sometimes I, it changes the way I walk. It affects the rest of me. The point is this. In the body of Christ, we truly are spiritually connected to one another. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. We live in this, this false impression that somehow, you know, if I individually sin... If I, if I, you know, engage in some sort of hate act, or if I'm addicted to pornography, or if I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, if I'm engaging in some sort of sin, well, that's just me. It doesn't hurt anyone else. It's an individual sin. That, I would tell you, is a lie. Yes, it is an individual sin, but you are not disconnected for the other members of the body. If you are hurting, we all hurt. 
That's why if one is hurting, we all help. I need you. I need you. You need me. We need one another. The renewed mind enables us to know our role and our gifts in the body and to use them fully. The point is to know your role and to do you fully. I want to tell you a story. It's about a woman named Mabel. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, shares a true story about a woman named Mabel and her interaction with a friend of his named Tom Schmidt. Here's Mabel. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are wanting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside. And it smells of sickness and stale urine. Tom says, I went there once or twice a week for four hours. But I never really wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place that one gets used to. On this one particular day, though, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, people who were strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs, looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman who was strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare with the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she also was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. It had pushed her nose to one side and caused one of her eyes to drop and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was actually the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when the new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there in that convalescent center, bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone, for 25 years. This was Mabel. 
I don't know why I spoke to her, Tom said. She, she looked less likely to respond than most of the people that I saw in the hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her physical deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know. I'm, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her chair down the hall to a place where I thought we could find some alert patients. I found one. I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. This was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she had managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue in a box next to her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would actually continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On the other days, I would take a book of hymns, and I would sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics that she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in the hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to her to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in so many different directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. And the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's night or day? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel? What do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus.
I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, well, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know? I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think that I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an, an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. How did she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did many days and weeks and months and years of pain without any human company, without an explanation of why it was all happening, and she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here was an extraordinary human being who received the supernatural power to do extraordinary things because her entire life consisted of following Jesus the best she could in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower or a piece of candy to give. Mabel had given her life to Jesus. She had received a renewed mind. She knew her place in the body, and it was exactly where God wanted her, and Mabel did Mabel well. The fourth and final step is in Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, which I want to read to you now. It says... Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with 
brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, you, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The last step is encapsulated by the very first line of, of Romans chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul says, let love be genuine, real, authentic, no pretense, no outward display or emotion that is not consistent with the nature of God who is love and who has loved us. This passage in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 is, is one of the most important passages in Romans because you see, if you recognize that this is a short series of commands, let love be genuine, abhor evil, cling to what is good. They're all commands. They're all short, pithy phrases. It kind of looks like Proverbs or even in some senses the Ten Commandments. And that's why, and the reason for that is because it's a particular style of writing that both the Jews and the Greeks used called parenesis. Say that with me, parenesis. It was a way of encapsulating moral teachings that you would teach to younger people. So what we have in Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, is a look back into an early Christian teaching. This was a passage that was probably written on something else and was used by Paul and others to explain to people who would come to know Jesus, this is what it means to follow Jesus. If we had to bust it down to a kernel and say, give it to me in 10 verses, this is it. And it's not surprising that several of these verses looked like they came straight from Jesus. Verse 14, 17, 18, and 21, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, which was written after. Matthew was written after this. So here's Paul giving us the substance of the fourth step so that we understand what it means to live like Christ and to respond in our turbulent times. Our love must be genuine. What does it look like? It looks like, genuine love looks like showing brotherly affection and going above and beyond to show honor to one another. Genuine love means serving the Lord with zeal as one who is, literally, it says, be fervent in the Spirit. It literally means to be set on fire by the Spirit. Serving the Lord as if you're set on fire. Now, come on, some of you, ta you know, tongue-wagging, prophesying, laying on hands, healing, dancing around kind of people, you got to get excited when the Bible says to be set on fire by the Spirit. All right? I'm just telling you. Got to wake you people up. I put you to Mabel and I put you to sleep, I think. Genuine love is enduring tough circumstances. 
rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Genuine love means you love your enemies. You bless those who persecute you. You don't repay evil for evil. You don't avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. And if your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. Genuine love means you're not jealous of others. And you're not hard-hearted. You're going to rejoice and genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. And you're going to weep and mourn with those who mourn. Genuine love seeks to live in harmony with one another. I'm going to say that again. Genuine love seeks to live in harmony with one another. He says, do what you can, everything you can, to live at peace with others. i got to tell you something. I got off of Facebook as a spiritual discipline. That is a spiritual discipline. I got off of Facebook, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, because I couldn't take it anymore, but I still hang on to Twitter. But I'm about to kill that one too, because I'm going to tell you something. Twitter is like systemic, cathartic vomit. I mean, look at your neighbor and go, that's kind of what it seems like to me. I mean, somebody posts something, and it's like, they just, they just puke all over them. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's just, yeah. I, I got to tell you, we need to set the example of what it means to live in harmony with one another. And here's the key to that. God cares more about what you think about me than what you think about what I think. I'm going to say that one more time. God cares more about what you think about me than what he, than what he thinks about, you know, what, what you, th yeah, you got it. He cares more about what you think about me than what you think about what I think, right? Because, you know, listen, that beautiful bride of mine down there, Sue, she is absolutely amazing. She's, she's awesome sauce, you know. You know what awesome sauce is? Awesome sauce is kind of sauce that goes good with anything, you know what I'm saying? That's awesome sauce. She is awesome sauce. And I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but every once in a while, she disagrees with me, right? Now, she's wrong, but she disagrees with me. Right? But seriously, it's far more important that I, that I love James and Brianna, which I do, than whether I agree with what they think. We got to have that. We need that in here. We need that between churches. We need that out in the world. Okay? Live in harmony with one another. Genuine love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. Abhors is a, just an amazing word. It's, it means hates exceedingly. Whew. Genuine love exceedingly hates evil and clings the word cling is is a term that's used in marriages for intimate union clings to what is good to give you the idea of what Paul's saying you you exceedingly hate evil when you have genuine love and you are intimately involved holding to clinging to that which is good and and you choose not to overcome evil with evil but to overcome evil with good Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 in Germany. By the age of 14, he knew that he wanted to be a theologian, a Christian theologian. 
By the age of 24, his brilliant mind had excelled such that he was already a professor of systematic theology teaching at Berlin University. It was 1930 when he started teaching, but by 1933, Adolf Hitler had come to power in Germany. As a result, he abandoned his academic career, and he began to denounce on the radio and through other means the Nazi political system. He said on the radio to all of Germany that Nazism essentially corrupted and grossly misled the nation and made the Fuhrer its idol and God. Because the Lutheran Church basically had capitulated and yielded to Hitler, he left the Lutheran Church and formed another group called the Confessional Church. It was a group of Protestants who were committed to the message of the Bible and to restoring true Christianity in Germany. He knew that nothing less than a genuine return to the Christian faith could save his country. <clears throat> After several months of struggle, he left for a time from Germany and went to London, and there he pastored two churches that were filled with German expatriates, people who had left Germany for safety. However, not long thereafter, he decided he could not stay in England, but he had to go back to Germany to help the Christians there. His heart longed and belonged to the oppressed and persecuted fellow Christians, and he could not desert them at a time when they most needed him. So knowing the danger, he willingly returned to Germany and opened a church training college to help young pastors learn how to live the Christian life in the midst of the turbulent situation. Three years after he started that, the Gestapo shut it down. For Bonhoeffer, Hitler was the Antichrist, the arch-destroyer of the world and its basic values, the Antichrist who enjoys destruction and slavery and death and extinction for their own sake. So in the early 1940s, he made the amazing decision to conspire with others, including some of his own family members, in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He reasoned that it was not only his task to look after the victims of a madman who drives a car into a crowded street, but to do all in his power to stop the person from driving the vehicle. Bonhoeffer was arrested in Germany in 1943 and placed into prison. When the Gestapo interrogated and tortured him, he refused to recant. And he defied the Gestapo by openly admitting that as a Christian, he would be an implacable enemy of the Nazis and their totalitarian demands on the people. Over the next two years while he was imprisoned, he ministered to the other prisoners and to the sick who were in the prisons where he was held. He even ministered to the guards. His courage, his unselfishness, his goodness inspired all who came into contact with him. And, and the guards ended up bringing paper to him so that he could write letters and his poems. And the guards would then smuggle his letters out of prison. Some of the guards even apologized for having to lock his door. At the same time, Bonhoeffer was a human being who struggled with his own conflicting internal thoughts about whether he was really strong enough to endure. And he wrote poems about that. In April of 1945, just a few days before 
His prison was liberated by the Allies. Bonhoeffer was stripped of his clothes. He was taken to the gallows. And he was hung naked in the prison yard by the special order of Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS Black Guards. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who gave himself entirely to Jesus. He lived a transformed life with a renewed mind. He knew his place in the body and did everything he could to fulfill it, even at the ultimate sacrifice of his life. He chose the path of genuine love, abhorring evil, clinging to good, and choosing to overcome evil with good. He was God's man for that time. And he's an inspiration to us today. This is our time to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to a turbulent world in the circumstances in which we live. Just as in the days of Rome or in the days of World War II, God has given us all we need to further the kingdom of God. We must first give ourselves entirely to Christ. We must live a transformed life with a renewed mind. Third, we must know our place in the body and use the gifts that God has given them, given to us to, to fulfill our purpose in the body. And last and most importantly, we must let our love be genuine. That's real life. That's the life that God intends for us now in this time. Would you stand with me as we pray? I think that there may be some of you today who just want to come and pray. I'm going to ask Matt and, and Greg and Josh if you guys would just come up front and stand across the front. There may be some of you who truly have never given your life to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've been living with one foot in the world and one foot in his presence and, and, and you need to decide to give yourself entirely to him. Or there may be other, other things you wish to pray about. I would just invite you as the band comes now and plays to feel free to come forward and pray with any of these amazing men who are up front here. And then after you're done and after you're done praying, feel free to leave. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've made us as a people for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.